When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. All right, guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Um, I am flying so solo for this one, but uh, I am very happy to be joined by Seth Breedlove and Heather Mosier. And Seth, uh, this is both actually both your second time on the show. Mm-hmm. Yes. Heather, do we do we get at a prize or something? Not <laughs> <laughs> that not that I'm aware of. I think you got to be. It's like it's like the Saturday Night Live Five Timers Club. You got to be on the show five times. So. But so at least something hey, to aspire to. You, you you made the cut as a return guest, both of you. So you should feel you should feel privileged about that. Seth, I had you on back in I think it was February, and we talked about um, your on the trail of UFOs documentary series. And Heather, I had you on just about like um, about a month and a half ago with Steve Stockton talking about the monster ma- monster madness, which we kind of got off the topic we got off the topic a little bit on that but that was fine yeah and we actually talked a little bit about the subject we're going to talk about tonight which is the bell witch and because uh seth you have a film that you have done about the bell witch yeah yeah we um I think so. I don't remember this timeline of events, but apparently, I was talking to Heather about it back in 2017. So this has apparently been on our radar for a while. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we've been building up to this for for quite some time. So I'm just excited to have it out there next week and start seeing how people respond to it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. It comes out comes out next week. That'll actually be right before the show is going to post. Um, so Seth, what interested you in making a film about the Bell Witch? Um, I mean, to be, you know, perfectly honest, we, we chose this project, um, for like mostly the reason that one of my oldest friends who's, who's part of the crew is terrified of the Bell Witch. And I thought it'd be a funny way to mess with him. Um, (laughs) if we made a movie about the Bell Witch and then, um, in the run up to the movie, I found myself getting more and more. Um, pulled into the story and by the time we made the movie and then even afterward um, I think I've done more research and reading about the topic than I have a lot of the other subjects we've covered in the last couple of years I think it just gained a, a personal sort of uh, uh, interest in in the Bell family and life in their early 1800s and um 
Yeah, and just looking into the area where the whole thing happened and, and the impact of the legend on, on the state and things like that, I, I really went from being, I guess, just having sort of a mild interest in it to to really finding myself um, pulled in by the whole thing. And and, um, and I'm really glad we, we made the movie. And to be honest, like I think there's plenty of material left to to cover more than what we got to because i mean if you've seen the movie it's it's very centered around ingram's mm-hmm. side of the story and then you know very much that 18 17 to 18 21 time period rather than anything that took place after that so there's a lot of gold there still to mine um <laughs> if we ever want to come back to the story as i'm sure heather can attest to yeah absolutely well i'm, I'm curious guys about because like i i grew up in tennessee and I've lived here pretty much most of my life. And so, like, I pretty much, like, grew up with this legend. I think the first time I heard about it was probably, like, sixth or seventh grade, actually. And especially when I moved to um, when I moved to Nashville and that area, it was a pretty, pretty prevalent uh, myth, pretty prevalent legend up there. And I'm curious, the guys, like being from another part of the country, being from Ohio, even though it's fairly close, you know, uh, had you guys, like, when was the first you guys that really heard about it? Yeah, the first time that I heard about the Bell Witch was probably, I don't know, 2016. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't, um, it wasn't all that long ago that she came across my radar, although I'm starting to realize that um, apparently she was mentioned in things that I've been aware of for some time. It just hadn't been something that really grabbed my attention for whatever reason. I guess I just wasn't ready for the story or something. I don't know. I, I got in, I, I mean, I guess I, I was made aware of it by Jason, the, the guy who's terrified of it, okay. um, telling us about it. We were on a drive and I can't remember what film we were doing. Um, but we were driving somewhere and he told us the story about how, <clears throat> you know, as a kid, he had, he had been made aware of the Bell Witch at school and how um, he, he became so frightened of it that he was having like recurring nightmares. And, and eventually his, his dad told him that if they, um, if they drew a picture of the Bell Witch and burned it, uh, it would, it would cure his, uh, fear of the bell witch and that was sort of my introduction to the bell witch but like heather i mean you know it turns out i was aware of the bell witch i just didn't i didn't really realize who the bell witch was or didn't connect that name to it um right. and and the interesting thing there's a lot of overlap between the bell witch story and a lot of the other subjects we've covered in our films um you know i keep i mean in in a way the bell witch is kind of a classic monster story like it's this you know unstoppable force that moves into these people's lives and terrifies them and 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 it it really speaks to speaks to a lot of what small town monsters the series is supposed to be about um in particular like the way that the legend impacted the community where it happened um you know especially you know they have a they have that sign along the road and and they do the play every year and there's the bell witch cave and all these things. I mean, it's a, it's a huge legend that has impacted a very tiny, tiny community. Um, so that immediately, you know, I was attracted to that pretty, pretty much immediately. But um, yeah, the, the short story is, I think it was 2000, 
2017 when I became aware of it, but I guess it's totally possible it was 2016. Yeah. It's, um, for me, it's interesting. You said that your friend, um, saw it in school and, uh, or like had heard about it in school. That's exactly where I heard about it too, was in school. So that must be like one of those things that they tell. Is he from Tennessee or from the area, from the area? No, no, he's from, he's from Canton, Ohio, which is, okay. you know, I grew up in Bolivar, Ohio. So he grew up in Canton. I mean, th- that story, yeah, that story is, is it's traveled. Like it's very well traveled. And uh, in the trailer, like I, we refer, we referred to it as the most infamous haunting in American history. And I know today, I don't think the popularity is, is maybe as, prevalent as it was at one time but you know at one time i would be hard pressed especially in like the 60s and 70s when he had uh country songs being written about it and that kind of you know it was appearing in gold key comics i'd be hard pressed to find another haunting event that that could even compare in terms of popularity to the bow witch yeah it has that real legend status to it and and i've i've been up to adams and I've never gone to the cave. I've never done that stuff. Um, the whole time I lived there, I never actually went. Um, but Adams in and of itself, the one time that I actually went up there, uh, just has a really strange feel to it. Did you, did you guys find that when you went there? Um, I really enjoyed the town. Actually. It kind of reminded me of home. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't get any strange vibes really from it. It just seemed like a second home. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm in the same camp. And I think Heather and I both probably immediately connected the landscape to where we're from. Yeah. Uh, because we're, we're both we're both from the same sort of part of Ohio. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of like farmland and some rolling hills and and some some really cool river gorges. And I mean, it really is not far off from what you find in in like northeast Ohio. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, such a small town. And growing mm-hmm. up in a small town, it just it just felt the same, really. You know, the only thing I can say about the creepiness of it, though, and and this mm-hmm. was like kind of a slow build for me because I was there for five, six days. We right. got there and it was like, oh, this is a just a quaint, nice little small town. By the time I left, I wouldn't say my opinion had changed drastically, but but the one thing that I thought was very unusual was the the fact that the Masons kind of dominate, <laughs> dominate that town to the, to the point where, to the point where we actually, <laughs> we actually were like in the middle of an interview with one of the people in the movie and discovered that they were a Mason and they ended up taking us to the Mason lodge and showing us the, like the, the main temple or whatever, the main room, uh-huh. um, and showing us some of the history of, of the Masonic temple in the area. Um, and I just thought there was some, there was, it was very unusual. You go to Bellwood cemetery where all the bells are buried and there's Mason symbols on most of the graves. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a strange kind of over time. It kind of snuck in um, and we weren't, we weren't looking for it. It just kind of found us Um and I know, I know even Tim Henson, who is featured prominently in the movie, told me he's kind of like, he's kind of leery of the Masons. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily leery of the Masons, but I know that um, 
two members of my crew who are very uh, into conspiracy theory were convinced we were all going to be murdered at any minute. So. Oh, man. See, that's the difference, though. Where I grew up, there are a lot of Masons. There are yeah. Masons in my family. And so that when I see that imagery and stuff, it just it doesn't even register. Yeah, you know, like, and that's the thing. Like, I went into it, and I was, like, the skeptic. But the one thing I will say about it is it, it is very unusual that, that the Bells, who are a sort of uh, lower, low, they would have been lower income than some of the other prominent families at that time in the area, that that family has become the dominant family in Adams that you mm-hmm. can't, you know, Bell, Bell High School, Bell, I mean, there's, everything's Bell. Right. There's like a Bell Baptist Church right right down by the Bell Cave. Uh, <laughs> so it's like the it's and and the only thing I can think of is the fact that they were so tied into the Masons and maybe mm-hmm. you know it, the the sure. one thing that this guy said to me that I thought was interesting is he said there's no one in this town he said he was like there's no one in this town who who how to, oh shoot I'm I'm butchering this. He basically said there's there is no one in Adams who isn't in a who is in a position of power who isn't a Mason. Right. I, I can, and I thought I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I I can believe it. I mean the the uh, you know Surfiel sent me a picture of the where the like just the, I guess from Google or whatever uh from the maps and it just shows like the the Masonic Lodge is pretty close to the to the actual cave as I understand it. So it's funny though. It's back in a neighborhood. Like you drive back, you drive back into this neighborhood and then you wouldn't even necessarily know this is a Masonic temple. It sits back by, you know, it looks like a house. It looks like someone's house. Yeah. I mean the, the Masons that it's, but Masons are everywhere. And I mean, at the time in the 19th century, I mean, Masonry was a pretty huge thing. Um, But are you, Andrew Jackson may have actually been, I think he was a Mason. They think he may have actually been at the Port Royal Lodge, which at that time would have been the, you know, Adam Station Lodge. I mean, that would have been a neighboring lodge that he may have been at. So we uh, we, we may have already recorded a, a Patreon segment for our listeners about the Bell Witch. And, but uh, I know Heather is aware of this because we actually talked about this on the last show that we did with Steve. We got on this subject uh, that, Joe Nickel, but uh, the kind of like arch skeptic, his his method of debunking the Ingram account is that actually Ingram was putting a lot of Masonic uh, allegory and imagery into uh, his book. Yeah, Nickel just that's so stupid. Do you do you like the the concept? That there's this Masonic imagery buried in there is just idiotic to me. I, I don't see it. And I read the I read that article and I still can't figure out what he's talking about. Like he's really grasping at straws. It's for the initiated, Seth. You don't know because it's for the initiated. Yeah, but is yeah. he a Mason though? Because I feel like he picks and chooses different parts just yes. to try to make it fit. Yeah, well that's kinda that's kind of what skeptics do anyway. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least he didn't try to say the bubble, which was an owl, which is like his <laughs> go-to. Yeah, that's usually his go-to. His usually his go-to theory, right? And I like <laughs> I like that guy for the most part, but that that I read that yeah. article, I, it just seems um, moronic. Right. But it, Not again, to put it's find a point on it. it it's, right. it's 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 inter- it's interesting whenever uh, this these skeptics come up with like owls being the cause of these. Uh, you know, Mothman I think was explained in some ways by an owl and also Sandhill Crane. But like, um, yeah, Flatwoods, Flatwoods as well. But like in light of like the stuff that um, Mike Clellan's material, I find that pretty interesting that they come up with owls as a as an explanation for it. Yeah. Right. You- I, I actually, I spoke with um, someone I know who's a Mason and brought up some of these points from Nichols' article. And um, aside from certain parts that he, he mentions that absolutely do have to do with Masons, the way it was explained to me without them revealing secrets or whatever, is that um, say that as you're being initiated, there's a specific uh, way that you have to walk around the room and you have to walk to the, you know, turn to the right, walk five steps, turn to the left. Essentially, the way they explained what Nickel did was to say, okay, well, somebody in this story walked five steps. That is a secret. Like, that's what they pulled. Whenever the five steps are relevant to the greater point of the initiation, Mm -hmm. um, he's just taking random parts that actually aren't all that important and kind of miss the whole point of what they mean uh, Mm -hmm. just to try to make it fit for his argument right it's it's an interesting article and i i would i would urge people to read it but take it with a grain of salt i i find it i i i find it interesting just that he i mean i think i think that he tries to debunk it using that but i find it interesting that why would somebody put that kind of imagery in the book. I think that that's the interesting part. Not necessarily that because Nickel is just going to debunk all day. He's going to say that like poltergeist cases never happen, even though they actually do. But you know, so I mean, there's far easier ways of, of attempting to debunk the bell witch than going down the, the Mason. Yeah. Uh, you know, Masonic, uh, par- not parody, um, whatever. <laughs> uh, like there, there's easier ways of doing that. Right. Um, you know, we have, the fact is like, I don't think we'll ever know how much of that story is true and how much of it is, is fiction or right. if any of it is true and any of it's fiction. Right. I, I did want to talk to you, Seth, a little bit about like, kind of like the, the, the production and the way that you did it. Cause I know this one, um, and I've heard you say this, that, um, this one's a little bit more using reenactments than your previous work. Yeah, I think the only one that competes with it is Momo, and and Momo, <coughs> sorry, Momo has about forty minutes, I think, of screen time. You know, with with recreations, and I would actually, <coughs> I I actually think this one might have, if if not in the same ballpark, maybe even more uh, than Momo did. It's just it's done in a completely different way. Momo is very tongue-in-cheek with the recreations and we could always fall back on the fact that you know we were it was supposed to be sort of a a fictional movie you were watching that was you know made in the 70s and was kind of cheesy and all this stuff so we had a we had written ourselves an out with bell witch it we we really had to go for it like it had to be straight-faced it had to be well acted and all that kind of stuff so um uh 
Yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know what led me to go this route with this particular project, other than the fact that, um, you know, with a typical STM project, um, especially the the movies, we can we can inevitably fall back on the witnesses and the witness stories to kind of carry the film. Cause it's at the end of the day, it's their story um, with Bellwitch, Obviously we, we don't have those witnesses with us. So um, at a certain point it became very much to, to me anyway, it became very much about making our audience feel like they were living in that time period. And um and so to do that, you know, like we had to, we had to, like I said, we had to go for it. We had to attempt to to recreate an 1800s world. And one thing that's really been rewarding is seeing the the reviews where they talk about um, the, the feeling, how watching the movie, you become aware of what life would have been like at that time, in that time period, um, being alone on this farm, mm-hmm. living in this house, miles from anyone and suddenly there's you know sounds in the walls and voices coming from who knows where and then and then it becomes you know a physical um physical attack by this being or creature or spirit or whatever you want to call it um and so yeah we 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 i wanted more than anything to make the audience invest themselves in that idea and and to feel like they were a part of that world and so you don't necessarily end up with, you know, um, uh, co- concise, complete scenes. There, there are a couple of those where you're getting, you know, entire sequences. But for the most part, what you're seeing are little like vignettes um, and, and scenes that are supposed to just pull you into the world of, of the early 1800s. And so I think, you know, part of that was to have um, Zach Palmasano, who always is director of photography on your movies, be director of photography of the documentary. And then for the recreation, Santino Vitale, uh, who's our effects wizard and, and has been with us since Flatwoods. Um, he was director of photography of the recreations. And then Zach was also shooting uh, stuff that was involved in the recreations, but, but it's really like Santino's vision that's driving those recreations. Um, and so I think we ended up with something that, that looks and feels in some way very, very different from other STM movies while f- still feeling very much a part of the series, I hope, anyway. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I felt like this one uh, was, was, was pretty involved, and especially with the, with, with the recreations. They're pretty effective stuff, too, I, I must say. Um, yeah, the house, I mean, that house, it, that's one thing I have to point out is, that we found to film this thing in was actually built potentially prior to 1830, but at least it was built around 1830. It's about 20 minutes from where I live. Um, And it sits kind of on farmland that, that very much resembles the actual bell farmland, at least to me, Um, you know, big farmers fields and, and the house kind of sits back in a wooded glen um, and it just very much felt like you were, as we started moving modern furniture out of the house and, and actually getting into shooting some of the scenes, you, you felt like you were living in, mm-hmm. in that time period. It was really cool. Yeah. I was about to ask you whether you actually filmed those scenes in Adams or you filmed them uh, somewhere else. 
Yeah, I know it's Wayne, Wayne County, Ohio uh, is, <laughs> is where we filmed those scenes. But we, I mean, it is worth pointing out too. We filmed the re- most of the interviews were filmed in the, the actual bell cabin that sits near uh, the bell school. Oh, okay. And so that was another thing I wanted to ask you too. Some of the people that you actually got um, to come and, and, and talk about the bell, Witch. who were some of the people that you interviewed? Uh, Heather can probably help me here. Cause I'll, <laughs> I'll more than likely forget someone and, and Heather helped put this list together. But um, yeah, we, the big three are Brandon Barker, Timothy Henson, and Pat Fitzhugh. And those three sort of lead the audience through the story. Um, and, and the movie is as in some ways as much about them um, as it is about the, the bells. It, it's not explicitly about them, but if you really look at the themes being explored at, at least um, subtextually, I think those three guys are, are at the heart of that. Um, and, uh, those, you know, Brandon's a folklorist. Uh, Pat is, is an established author who's written a lot about the Bell Witch. And Tim has been covering the Bell Witch story for like 40 plus years and is, is largely responsible for the Bell, uh, the, the Adams Museum that's in the Bell School. Wow. Um, yeah. And then beyond them, um, you know, we have a lot of, of different people that, that come and go throughout the story. Um, Heather Mosier. Uh, and and Forrest Burgess uh, are sort of the other key storytellers, and then we have um, other people that kind of come and go. Dewey, Dewey Edwards is in there. Uh, Bo, is it Bo Adams? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bo Adams, uh, Kara uh, Tobit or to- yeah. Tobit. To- yep, that's it. I nailed it. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> Brenda Moss. Um, and then one of the big gets for the movie was John Baker Jr. Who's like this renowned uh, historian. And in fact, like in the state of Tennessee, he's, he's one of the most well-regarded historians in the state. When, when Brandon found out we had managed to get an interview with him, he was, he was kind of shocked. Um, so, so there's, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone, Heather. Am mm, I? Uh, if you are, I have also, okay for the moment okay yeah um so yeah it's it's made up it's a movie that the interviews are made up of um historians and uh locals and for the most part everyone in the movie is a local with the exception of heather mosher yeah uh who well forest i guess too forest is is la so there's two outsiders in the mix (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about the bell witch let's talk about the story as you guys kind of like understand it um kind of like 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 the course of it i mean i'm i'm pretty well versed in it i i'd like to think but i'm not you know it's some of some of it even i I tell you there were things that i learned in watching your documentary that i had not heard before so I'll let Heather tell the story because I don't. I'm, I'm not a storyteller. <laughs> what? I mean, I am. I'm not a. You're a. You're a visual storyteller. I'm a visual storyteller. <laughs> At one time, I I was otherwise, but those days are gone. Uh, yeah. Um. 
1817, the Bell family started hearing sounds. Well, actually, the first thing that happened was John Bell was out um, on his property and he saw this really odd looking creature, mm-hmm. which was, they describe it as um, like a dog with a rabbit's head, which is really odd. Um, strange. Yeah, super strange. And I think some of the boys saw some things as well that were, were off. Um, then there was there were sounds that started happening at night, scratches on the walls, gnawing on the bedposts, things like that. But when they would light a candle or lantern to see what was going on, the sounds would stop. This, the sounds start escalating and then physical abuse starts happening, particularly to Betsy Bell, the daughter, and uh, John Bell. Eventually, they start to hear whispers that become clearer at some point and this spirit starts tormenting them particularly john and saying really nasty things to everybody except lucy bell the wife of john bell because she adored lucy for some reason and um she swore that she was going to kill john bell so things just keep escalating until john bell starts having these physical fits where i think in the in Ingram's book, it's described as like a stick sideways in his mouth. And he has difficulty eating, breathing, walking, things like that. And um, he ends up dead one morning um, after having a particularly bad fit a few days before that in 1820, December of 1820. December 20th is when he passed away. And when he died next to his bed, there was a little vial of dark liquid that was half empty and the spirit said that she was the one who did it and then proceeded to laugh at his funeral um she also made sure that betsy didn't get married to the man that she was in love with um but yeah that's pretty much it in a a super short nutshell (laughs) that was great i loved it thanks seth (laughs) what are you guys thoughts on the bail because you do depict this in the um, in the film, Seth, um, about the, uh, the the them digging up into like I, I have heard two two things. I've heard that it was a burial, like you depicted. I've also heard that they dug into an Indian mound. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is all I know about it. At least what I know about it from Tim is that there were mounds on that property and in fact we saw a mound back in the woods near the slave graves that you see toward the end of the movie um that's never brought up in the film because there was no easy way to do it but at the very end of the movie when you're seeing john bell's grave you you'll notice these little like rock um headstones there's a point where uh brandon is on the ground wiping something away from from the front of one of them those are actually slave graves and john was buried with his slaves which apparently was kind of unusual Hmm. um but back in that same forest we actually found a mound back there um so so there there definitely were mounds on the property um and there's a story and i can't remember exactly how it goes Kara probably would be able to correct me on this, but there was a, there was a body found near the cave, near the Bellwitch cave, like a skeleton uh, that they believe was a native skeleton that was eventually transferred to the cave yeah. uh, where, where they kind of turned it into like a tourist attraction basically. Um, but uh, yeah, for 
you know, I've heard, I've heard both versions of the story. It's kind of like the hanging woman, right? Like you've heard the version of the story that it was a woman hanging in a tree by a noose. You've heard that it was a, a, a little girl hanging in the tree, which is swinging in the tree, which is, I believe how Ingram portrayed it. And then there's also that, um, recurring theme of like a girl a little girl swinging from like a swing Mm -hmm. which which is also what they portrayed in an american haunting um so every version every event that takes place in the bell witch legend has multiple variations and i'll let heather jump over to to your to your answer or to your question in a second but i wanted to point out it's one of the the reasons we designed the witch to appear in the film the way she does. Um, You see her in these two different manifestations. One is like as a veiled woman that is supposed to be sort of a throwback to the version of the legend that includes John Bell marrying Kate Batts or being betrothed to Kate Batts and then murdering her. That is, that's like a, that's a variation of the legend that exists and was written about um, in this famous bell, Witch song, which is hilarious and super campy. Um, And then there's the second version of the witch, which is supposed to sort of call back to the, the possible native American spirit roots, but it is, it is pretty much, directly lifted from a nightmare that that heather had uh so yeah i just wanted to point out there's a lot of throw uh callbacks to various variations of the different events throughout the bell legend that are sprinkled throughout the movie yeah there are mounds all over um adams that was one thing that when i went down would a separate time from when seth went down um and tim henson was taking me around as well he would point out different areas where there would be mounds and i mean they're all over and above the cave there are burials that go back thousands of years kara's told me about those and Mm -hmm. they've those bodies are buried in a fetal position and all facing i think she said the east which would make sense um but the body that's in the cave well there's not a body in the cave anymore but they found that along the river at some point i don't think the kirby's did i'm pretty sure it was there right for them um but they found the body along the river and then relocated it to the cave then somebody stole it so you just see the uh the box essentially which is a stone type there's a name for it that's escaping me right now it's in the cave but yeah that that burial um Mm -hmm. that mode of burial is apparently very common i don't know if it was common throughout north america with native americans but i know that tim told me they they like basically fold the body in half and it's so they it's so they um it's i guess it was more down to just logistically they didn't have to dig as much so they they basically are you know digging half a grave and then they kind of the body gets folded and pressed down inside you know there were um when the kirby's moved into the property where the cave is now they Mm -hmm found a bunch of bones that were in the shed, I guess. The former Ooh. owner had found bones and then just kind of collected them all in the shed. Mm. Huh. I think the way Chris explained it was um, the family dog had just kept showing up with these bones. And she's like, where are you getting these things? And eventually they found them and they had contacted local authorities 
and had some tests run and they were told that they were Native American. Um, and then essentially they said, well, uh, I guess the authorities said, well, we're just going to throw them away if you don't want them. And she ended up contacting the proper people so that they could get buried as they yeah. should. But you know, one thing that I was unable to find the answer to when I was there that I really wanted to get to the bottom of was Troy Taylor did a book about the bell witch and yeah. in it, he mentioned that that mound would have actually been over top of where the cave is. Yeah. Well, is, there, there are burials. That's where the ones in the fetal position are above the cave. Okay. So, so Troy writes about it as if that is just definitively like the, the mound that, that is being referenced in the book. And I, I asked him about that and Tim said there are mounds there, but they don't, you know, there, there's no yeah. proof that he's aware of that that would be the same mound. Yeah. Well, but either way, they're that's all a weird over. coincidence. Yeah. 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 Well, Troy, and I have that book here actually, and um, I, I saw I saw Troy um, speak about that way back in like 2006 at a at a convention in Louisville, and um, he seems to think, and kind of like his theory is, is that when they dug this up, whether it was an Indian mound or whether it was just a burial in the ground, um, you know, flat ground that he seems to think that they actually unleashed something. And uh, Heather just talked about the, the animal that was like the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit. And um, it's interesting too, that rabbits, um, Pat Fitzhugh has talked to me about this too, about the rabbits like have a significance in the Bill Witch story, which is odd and strange. But he seems to think that this was something that was buried in the mound, some kind of spiritual force, and then it was unleashed by the Bell children, which I find an interesting thought. The other thing that Troy alludes to or explicitly says, I can't remember because it's been a few months since I read the book, but um, he talks about the fact that, that he believes that that area is, is very much like a window area. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that was I've I've said before I see a, a ton of overlap between the Bell Witch story and some of the other like window area type stories we've covered you know like Invasion on Chestnut Ridge or the Mothman of Point Pleasant. There's a lot yeah. of overlap. Um, maybe not as many what we would consider like classic quote unquote paranormal events. You know like. Um, like UFOs and, and Bigfoot. That stuff doesn't really seem to happen there very often, but uh, you've, you've definitely got multiple phenomena. It's not just necessarily the Bell Witch. Yeah, and I really, um, I really did p pick up on kind of that strange feeling whenever I went there. And, um, you know, it does, it does seem like that that, that possibly could be what it is. Um, I know that there's been and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but I know that there's been things that have happened after the main haunting that have been odd and, and, and really strange. Um, talk a little bit about the hanging woman, because that was an element that I did not know as much about. Um, <clears throat> I don't know why that particular piece of the story really stood out to me. Um, it's a creepy scene, by the way. And, and, and yeah, yeah. And it's, it's kind of like originally in the original cut of the movie, it was the first 
like quote unquote spooky scene the the chronology of the movie ended up changing over over time but originally that was the first one that you kind of encounter um yeah basically there was this event where where the kids were out playing in the woods and they discovered a a, well like i said there's there's variations to this story they they either found a woman hanging in a tree or they found a young girl uh, sort of playfully swinging in a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the two variations. And, and what's interesting is Heather in her interview talked about how the weather changed and, and things like that. I had never actually heard that before. So Heather talking about that, that was the first time I had, I had heard that particular piece of information. So Heather might have more to add to it, but I know that just in making the movie, that was also the first scene we shot with our lead actors was we, and, and I kind of consciously did that because I thought it was, it was kind of a creepy way to start the movie off. Um, and the way we shot it was also inc- incredibly dangerous because we tied an actual noose around my poor wife's neck and we had her oh, no. hanging. That was your, that was your wife. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. She, she was standing on a, uh, she was standing on a, on a, uh, a step stool or whatever that we eventually, you know, removed in, in like digitally, but, uh-huh, uh-huh. but nonetheless, it was, it was, uh, it was a great way to start off the shoot was to, to put my wife in, in uh, mortal peril while we film, film the scene. <laughs> That's true love, man. She really loves you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> she went for it. She went for it. Yeah. That, that particular story, like Seth said, has, has variations. Um, and the, they explain it as the weather did change, got colder, um, things got a little bit spookier, I guess, would be an easy way to say it. But one thing that is the same, because of course there's variance to everything, but then there's always a thread of similarity between these. Um, green. The green dress. Yeah. yeah the hmm. green dress was something that was the same in pale skin. And I think the long dark hair was the other um, similarity, regardless of and, whether and- it was the woman or the girl. And if I can point this out, so if if you go by the the green dress little girl story, there there is a girl, a little girl in a green dress that is seen in the Bell School still today. Um, there's a really spooky story that Tim Henson told us about getting a phone call one night back back around. This would have been around 2011. He got a phone call late one evening from uh, apparently at one time there was an antique store in the bell school and these, he got a frantic phone call from the owners saying, we, we need you to get down here. And he said, why? And they said, there's, there's a little, they said, um, they said, there's, there's the, the, the little girls here <laughs> and we see her all the time, but tonight is different. <laughs> Is how they put it, and Tim's like, "Well, what are you talking about?" And they they just begged him, I guess, to get down there. So Tim drives down to the school, pulls up. There's every door and window and light in the place is 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 all the windows and doors are open, and the lights are all on throughout the whole Bell School. And so Tim pulls in, goes inside. No one's there. Um, they, apparently, they had left. I don't know if they left in a panic or what. Uh, he was a little murky on the details of that, but they had gone down to Bellwood 
to the cemetery. So, so Tim comes out of the building looking for him. When he comes out of the building, he looked toward Bellwood and what he ended up seeing were, were these lights, were the spook lights dancing across the coming out of Bellwood down through the, the property that would be the Bell, former John Bell senior, you know, property toward the school. But apparently that little girl in the school is seen, has been seen by many different people. And they're as, as you get with like all these, you know, ghost haunting stories, there are variations as to who she is. There was a story that Dewey Edwards told us about a little girl who died in the, um, the nurse's office at the school. And he believes that's who the little girl in green is. But if you track back to the original Bell Witch legend, there's these stories about, you know, this little girl in green swinging from a tree. And, and I think there's, there's another event where they saw the same girl in green. Also, Heather, do you happen to know there's, there's a story about the kids seeing an old woman in an orchard? Um, yeah, that's part of the witch family stuff. Um, that's part of the witch family? Yeah, that's part of the witch family. If if it's the one that I'm thinking of, where um, I don't think so. I'm thinking this no? is very early on. This oh. is this is very early on in the story, where where the kids see an old woman in the distance uh, in an orchard, and they run to catch up to her. And when they do, she disappears. Oh yeah, I forgot about that one then. because it is. I could remember for the witch family too. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, let's talk about the witch family because that is like some of the spookiest shit in in the story, and it's some of the weirdest stuff too. So, what are the names of the witch family? Yeah, Seth. What are the names? You know what? It's my my homegirl Sipography, my <laughs> my my boy Jerusalem, uh, my girl Mathematics. Nope, that's boy. No, I'm just crap. I'm kidding. That's a girl. It's a girl. Okay. My girl (laughs) mathematics. And I can never remember the last one. Black dog. The one that black dog. Why? That's the one I just think, just think of the beginning of Led Zeppelin four. Yeah. It sounds like a, like a, like a, like a Harley biker. And it just stands apart from the others as being really goofy. So I always forget about it. That's the one that sounds goofy to you is black. dog. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, I'm sitting here with a, with two black dogs and neither of them scare me. So, well, it's the, the names, the names are very interesting because like, I mean, mathematics in Jerusalem. I mean, that's weird. Kind of straightforward. Psychography is just nonsense. I, I've I've lo- I've looked it up and tried to kind of figure out what it could mean if it was an actual science, but it's it's just a nonsense word. It's a cool word though. It is it it, it is a cool word. Yeah. So so how did these characters come in? How did they come into the story? Yeah, Heather, <laughs> the researcher. Yeah, so um, this is whenever things have really picked up and there are actual people stopping by the Bell home because this was so widely known that people would just show up and spend the night in hopes that they would see things or hear things, rather, I guess. And um, so these four voices appear one night and they said that not only would they talk and then eventually get to bickering and arguing to where Black Dog would have to get aggressive and shut everybody down, Um, you could smell liquor sometimes as if they were drunk. Mm. And um, they would also 
just taunt people, I guess, and they could recite recite things. Uh, I think they were also really good at mimicking voices. But um, yeah, they just appeared one night, those voices, and um, I guess were a family. And then they were seen later by Betsy and um, Esther, I believe, her sister, at Esther's place. They saw a woman walking down the road, and then there were three children. Like, I think the woman went over into the orchard, and the the children were bending the saplings and bouncing on them. And when Esther's husband came home, they were telling him, you know, get them, get them off of there, get them to stop. And he couldn't see anything. He could see the trees bouncing, but he couldn't see any figures. And so he ended up shooting in that direction. Um, he got his gun and they pointed to like a knot on a log and he shot. And then that night, whenever the voices came back to the bell home, they were laughing about how uh, Porter, which I'm not going to remember his name, but Esther's husband had broken Jerusalem's arm. He was such a good shot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I'm not sure. It's really difficult to tell how long those voices stick around because that's another thing with Ingram's book is you know when it starts and you know when John Bell dies. But other than that, he's not really clear on a timeline. So, Or, or if they... I can't remember if this was brought up or not, or if I asked you this question, but whether or not they interacted with one another, like yeah. if the bell witch interacted with the witch family. Oh, um, they, as far as I remember, I don't recall them discussing that she interacted with them. It was kind of like they took over the show for a while. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I had the impression that black dog and the bell witch were the same entity. It does kind of sound like that just because of how aggressive she gets, but I don't think that's ever explicitly stated Um, because we know that the witch answered to Kate whenever they eventually came to that. She answered to that, but I don't recall anything saying that she ever answered to black dog so much, but Jerusalem was a little boy. I do remember that. And um, psychography and mathematics were girls. And then black dog was like the matriarch. It had to corral everybody, but yeah, she does. It does sound like it could be the witch as far as her demeanor goes. And they would be seen like out in the, like the fields and. The only thing that was discussed of them being seen as a family, like physically manifesting Mm -hmm. was for Betsy and Esther on Esther's property. If, as long as I'm getting the sister, right. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, but they, but they were there for a while. Like they hung around for at least yeah. a few weeks uh, or, or longer maybe. Um, yeah. But, but the, it, it, they I were remember. super aggressive compared to, I think they were much more aggressive compared to like Kate. Um, Kate, you know, like I don't think there was ever like a, it, it was always pretty, pretty intense when they were around. Yeah. And I mean, Kate would get aggressive. It depended on if somebody provoked her or not. Yeah, but I think I think the difference is though, Kate. Yeah, you you would have those moments, those down times where it was like mm-hmm. Kate. They're just hanging out and she's singing to people, right? Or exactly. telling the weather, you know, yeah. being a goofball, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why was she referred to as Kate? What was the why was why was she referred to as that name? She said at some point when of course she went through this whole thing where she was messing with John and the family when they were trying to decide who she is or what she was and at first she said that she was a spirit that was um disturbed because the boys had taken that skull or whatever and a tooth fell out and uh, whatever and then another time she said that she was a traveler who'd buried treasure and she wanted the treasure found and then at some point she said she was kate batts's witch um and then the name kate just stuck i guess because it was easier that way they had a name finally even though uh that doesn't really make all that much sense i guess but um yeah it just stuck yeah, and they think that Kate Batts had absolutely nothing to do with it. Like, there, there wasn't, like, I guess the story was is that she was widowed or something, but they looked back at the records and found out she, her husband was actually alive when it was going on. And Kate, yeah. Kate Batts has been so tied to the story, um, be, uh, partially because the, there, there are a couple variations of the legend that have really, like, overstated her involvement in the story to begin with. Um, and one of them is that one that I mentioned where she was like engaged to, to John Bell. There's actually a variation of the story that that engagement was in North Carolina and then John Bell killed her. Um, and then there's another variation where it's John and her in Adams and they're married and he leaves her for, for his for Lucy or something like that. There's there's these two variations of the story that are similar, but but one of them is much more, you know, like um, well, he's murdering her, and then she <laughs> and then she's haunting him. Um, and that is what's interesting about that is that we met a girl while we were in Adams, who we actually ended up shooting an interview with. She's not in the movie though, which I can explain in a second. But her name was Kay Ethel Dickerson, and she. Um, it was total like coincidence that, that we interviewed her. She just happened to be visiting the, the bell school. She's from Texas. That's where she lives now, but she had apparently visited Adams as a child and stayed with her aunt and uncle who claimed to own Kate bats old house. And so she recalled staying with them at this house and all these strange things happening, including a cat, that she was convinced was Kate Batts. And she was aware of the version of the story she was aware of was that version of the story where Kate Batts and John Bell were, were engaged or married. And then he killed her and fled to Adams, which is begs the question of how they were living in her house. If she was dead in North Carolina, but, um, (laughs) but that it was interesting to me. That was like the version of the story she was aware of. And it was so over the top that like she had been told as a child that like a Kate Batts practice witchcraft in the basement of the house and like all these things that, that probably were just stories, you know, nonsense stories that were kind of passed around. Um, 
but it was it it was eye opening that 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 version of the story has permeated so much of of you know folklore that 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 was the story that she had grown up aware of um and the reason she did not end up in the movie was just because we don't have much present day stuff in the film yeah. um so i really want to do something with that interview cuz it's super interesting her her uncle actually who owned the house they were told when they bought the house that every uh generation or every every person that owned the house that there was a man that owned the house he died in two years and our uncle apparently died in two years after they bought the house um so she's she's not that's that interview's not in the movie but i need to do something with it because it's super cool now kate though she was actually related to lucy if i'm remembering correctly yeah um yeah and i have all of that in tim's interview Right. It's very, it's very convoluted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and apparently Kate loved Lucy. Kate, Kate Batts loved yeah. Lucy because she was family. She loved the way Tim said it is she loved Lucy, hated, hated John. Right. Well, you know, everybody loves Lucy. That's how it goes. <laughs> that is, that's true. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the role of folklore in this story because there's a, you do a good job of um, one of the guys that you talk to is a folklore. I guess he's a professor. And uh, you do a good job of like saying that, that, that there's elements of this story that are direct from folklore. And I guess really, for instance, something like Black Dog, just that name evokes the Black Dog folklore, right? So this is stuff that is just from, uh, from, the, from the folklore of the area, essentially. Yes. Yeah. The, the biggest example of that is actually, I could not find a way to get it into the movie, um, it just, it was, it was one of those things where informationally it, it's super interesting, but it was kind of dragging out the section where it was, but Brandon goes into this whole thing when it, when it is talking about, um, Oh, Heather, help me out here. The, the name of the, the slave that split the dog's head. Dean Aberdeen. Dean Aberdeen Bell mm-hmm. or Aberdeen. Um, Aberdeen, that story has to be, at least in some way derived from folklore because apparently there are all these stories, these folklore folkloric stories throughout Tennessee of someone's dog being injured or, or hurt or cut in two and then put back together. And apparently he, he references this one. There's this really famous one where like, a guy is swinging an ax or something and accidentally cuts his dog in two. And then he sews it back together. And when it's sewed back together, he accidentally sews the sides wrong. And so like it's, it's head is at one end or something. It's, it's really weird, but apparently this is like really common in Tennessee folklore. Um, and this is a couple centuries old. Like this, this goes way back and he gives some references that were really interesting and you have to believe that that Aberdeen story might in some way be pulling from that folkloric past. Heather understands this stuff on a level that I don't. Um, pretty, pretty much anyone who actually has a college degree understands these things better than I do and can speak much more eloquently about them. I'm just kind of pulling from what I've heard you know, fr- from the people that we interviewed or talked to. So I don't have that... I don't have the like scholarly context that 
that they do like Brandon does or Heather will have. But, but I thought there was a really interesting connection between, you know, the, their, their folklore and, and that story. What's your thoughts on all that, Heather? Yeah, there are tons of elements in there that draw upon folklore. And um, I think it's another way to, it's interesting the elements that draw upon many different things. Like we have a difficulty or a difficult time categorizing what the bell witch was. And I think part of that is because some of the elements of folklore that are within the story are all over the place. We have elements of witches when it comes to um, the idea of that witch hunter that shows up with Andrew Jackson. And he, he brags that he has a silver bullet that can kill a witch. That's part of folklore, especially in the Appalachian mountain region. Um, that silver can kill uh, a witch. And then, like you said, black dog. But of course, also you have familiars with witches that are usually black. Um, there are hares, rabbits, things like that. Um, there are stories of spook lights. That's all over the place, not just um, this particular region. But um, it, it pulls elements from all over the place that are in many different stories. And I would think the first thing that I think of, of course, I'm not familiar with the Tennessee story that Brandon was talking about, although now I want to know about it. Um, the idea of multiple heads on a dog as a classicist reminds me of Cerberus, dog of the underworld, but he had, yeah. he had three heads, but still the idea of something dead um, or undead rather having multiple heads that still evokes imagery of the underworld, um, death, darker sides, things like that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's all over the place, but it, it's just full of folklore. More folklore than Masonic imagery, I would say. <laughs> yeah. well, do you think something like that with the dogs, that, like, that that is probably, uh, that is a reference to Cerberus and that that is like a, a memory of that mythology in a way? I'm sure that Cerberus is probably not the only uh, the only creature like that, but um, multi-headed it, dog. It's possible, yeah. I mean, it, it's possible. I guess you'd have to look into um, the people that were in that region, um, and then what their native or ancestral mythologies would hold, because I think that that's kind of where you get the key to a lot of these places. And that's something that we kind of talked about in uh, Mothman Legacy. Um, as far as the people of the area kind of influences the folklore as far as their ancestors go. Right. That's a, that's a very good point. And you're bringing in also too, I mean, especially I guess with the slaves, you're bringing in that African folklore as well. So um, it's seems to be all over the place and really, really influences the story. Um Oh, let's talk a little bit about like the, the events like after the haunting things that happened after that maybe have like, uh, struck you guys and what, um, because I know that she, the witch says that she will return. And I think that's sometime in like the 1930s, if I'm correct. And I know that, uh, the book that I actually have here that I think it's Charles Bell, um, he actually writes the book I've read about like 1932. So, um, what are some of the, like su the subsequent events? Uh, all I've got is the, is that seven years, you know, Kate, before she disappeared or whatever, before she went away, said she'd be back in seven years. Is that right? 
Heather, yep. seven? Yep. Seven, seven years. years. And then she she did come back, but only really appeared to – is it John Jr.? Jun- John Jr., yeah. And she hung out with him for a little while, and they chatted. And and that stuff's really weird. Um, it's it's It gets into, like, apocalypse predicting and, yeah. and all sorts of, like, prophecy stuff. It's very odd. Um, and kind of, like, doesn't jive with – anything that's come before it. So I, I don't quite know what to make of make, make of that part of the story. Um, and then that's it. Like she had promised she'd be back in what? A hundred and nine years. I think it's yeah, 107, 107 107 years. But as far as I know, that never happened. So Heather a lot, probably a has lot of, information. A lot of sevens in there. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 yeah um, so she, she did come back and she talked to John jr. And like Seth said, it was a lot of uh, predicting of things that would come end of times type stuff like Nostradamus is sort of what it reminds me of. Mm. Um, and, uh, then one Oh seven, but I think that's in Charles, Charles Bailey Bell's book that is, is, is even as much as he knows she hadn't come back yet. Mm. Um, and as far as I know, she hasn't officially come back since then, but after she leaves, uh, Betsy marries her teacher, uh, Richard Powell, who was, a, I think, a very established lawmaker by that point, a statesman. And um, they live in Tennessee until he dies. And then she moves down to Mississippi, which is where we get, and that's where she's buried today. Um, and that's where you get the Mississippi version of the legend. And so I think um, there's, an, there's an interesting story that Pat Fitzhugh mentions that it was... Uh, I can't remember how many grands after John Bella was, if it was a great, like a great grandchild or what, there's a story that's very similar to something at the beginning of the legend where one of the granddaughters falls in love with someone, a a farm overseer or something. And her father kills the guy out of anger and um, because he doesn't want them to be together. And then she falls very ill when she realizes that her, uh, beloved is dead and then she dies um, as a result of heartbreak I guess and as they're taking her casket to the cemetery there's this massive bird that flies over the casket the entire procession to the burial and it has I think it had a bell on it or something um, and it was a large dark bird I believe but um, it, it's reminiscent of a story one of the variations where back in North Carolina before John Bell and Lucy moved to Tennessee, there was a story that John Bell killed a farm overseer because the farm overseer was in love with his, in love with his daughter or something, which again, doesn't make any sense because there wasn't a daughter that was old enough mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. time. She was like three, I think was the oldest child at that point. So it doesn't really, the stories don't really make sense, but um, I don't know. It's to see it come full cir- circle, I guess, at least in different traditions is interesting. How much of you guys do you think of the story is tradition and how much do you think is actually truth? Well, I mean, you know that the, the bell family existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that that's true. Yeah. I Nailed it. Yeah. I mean, as far as the rest goes, I have no idea. I don't know why. I don't know why Ingram would have, created such an elaborate story in yeah. the way that he did if there wasn't something that happened 
Um, but then the other side of that argument is, is that despite some of the big names and the big stories that they talk about, there's no evidence that we've found so far in the historical record to verify it. So I don't know. Um, I think something did happen though, because when I was looking into stuff for Seth for this, I did find a newspaper article that predates Ingram's writings. Mm -hmm. It talks about the bell, Witch, and it, it has to, it's um, a story about Springfield's ghost. Mm -hmm. And it talks about a spirit that was active in a, I think it was a doctor's home in Springfield. And a similar thing, people showed up to try to hear the sounds or see something move or whatnot. And in that they mention that, so many years prior, there was something known as the Bell Witch. But that is before Ingram started pumping out this book. So either he was really in the works for decades um, prior to its publication, or there was something that happened. I just don't know how much. Yeah, that, that article she found super interesting, too. What year was that, Heather? Uh, I feel like that was 1860s, 1870s. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it really predates the the Ingram stuff by like a, a, a long time, if I remember right from talking to you about it. Yeah. Um, oh, it's 1880. April okay. 27th and April 26th, or April 27th and 28th, 1880 is when the article yeah. came out. Yeah, I think Ingram wrote it in what, 1894, I think was when he wrote um, his his book. I uh, Where I'm at on it if anyone cares, which I wouldn't, if I was listening to this, <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> I care. I care. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, if I, you know, if I was, I mean, my, I have, I, I'm kind of with Heather, like this is a, a super convoluted story to, to concoct, um, you know, and maybe that, maybe that was part of the plan was to make it so insane that, you know, people would assume <laughs> it, it was real because, you know, one thing Pat Fitzhugh said to me during the making of it was you got to be, he said, you got yet to be real careful because um, the tricky part of turning this into a, f a film is making sure it isn't just a series of unconnected events. And because really the book comes down to just scene after, you know, little scenes, one thing happens and then another thing happens and then another thing happens and they're kind of like unconnected. Yeah. And, um, and if you're a storyteller, that's a, a lousy way to tell a story. You know, like if you're inventing a story, that's not an easy way to, to create a, a, a believable or, a, you know, a, a, stru a structured story. It just flies in the face of that. Um, so I don't, the other thing about it, and I think I just said this to Heather on her show like last week, but the witch is, the personality is so specific like she is she is who she is and if she is a fictional character if the spirit is a fictional character it it is one of the greatest fictional characters ever ever invented ever created like she's got she's got such a defined personality and such a specific personality and she acts in ways and behaves in ways that seem real like she lives and breathes on that page and I think that's that in itself adds an air of truth to the whole thing. I mean, even if she is a fictional character, she's been brought to life on on page, on the page. So I don't know where I stand on the whole thing. I think large, large portions of this 
are probably fiction. Um, and at the same time, I do think there is truth to it. I just don't know what that is. And I would, I would think that pretty much everyone involved in, in the story and in, in investigating and researching the story from Tim to Pat, you know, Brandon, Dewey, all these guys, I think they would all basically say that same thing. They have no idea. They have no idea of what is true and what isn't, but that doesn't make it any less important um, to remember. And it certainly doesn't make it any more, any less exciting to, to look into. Right. Because it's a great story, no matter what, I think it's, it's an incredibly fascinating story that, so a little bit before I watched your documentary that you sent me, Seth, I, um, Josh Gates has this new show. That's kind of like a spinoff of his show that what on the, I guess he's on the travel channel. I can't even keep up with all the channels, but w- which one it is. Um, so he sends his little investigators to Adams and I, I I'm going to tell you, uh, your documentary was so much better than this show. I would just, just, just kudos to you. Uh, but, um, they actually pulled in this guy that, um, found it's a, it was a travel log from someone that was on a military expedition, um, at the end around the same time period. And they're actually like two or three sentences about that. They were in this area and that they heard stories of this girl that was being tormented by a spirit. And it's pretty contemporary. It seems like it was pretty contemporary. Like, I think, I think he lives in Nashville. I can't remember what his name was, but I thought that that was pretty fascinating. And, and that's essentially like the core of the story is that this poltergeist case happened. And if you really look at, um, and you do a good job of, of showing kind of the escalation of the case, right? It, it starts off with the, the knocking, um, it starts to, it starts to kind of form a voice and then it starts to talk and that's totally in line with other poltergeist cases. And two that I can think of off the top of my head is the infield case, uh, where you have the same kind of thing. And of course the girl, little girl speaks in that weird voice, which no one can convince me that there wasn't something going supernatural going on there. Uh, if you've heard those recordings, there's no way that's coming out of a little girl, <laughs> but anyway, uh, but it was, but anyway, the one that really is similar to me, uh, to the bell, Witch is Jeff, the talking mongoose. Yeah. That's, that's the one that everyone references. And it, and it, th- there are, there are, uh, very, very big, very big, very large similarities between the two stories. Uh, the, the bell, Witch almost, loses out because there's a mongoose involved though like like (laughs) mongoose versus spirit mongoose is always going to (laughs) win but it was the same thing right it was it was the it was the rapping it started to form this voice it started to talk to everybody say that it was a that it tells them jeff the talking mongoose that's what i mean like like if you put I mean, uh, we should make a sequel to The Bell Witch that's just j- called Jeff, the Mark of the Jeff, the Talking Mongoose. Like, I, would, <laughs> I would do that movie. But yeah, they're, they're super similar to each other. And, and uh, the, the, yeah, the Talking Mongoose thing, 
the strange thing about that is I don't know that that case is like 19, wasn't it like 1940? 1930s. 1930s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there, there are, there are huge similarities down to uh, specific events that sort of, that sort of connect to each other. Um, And I think, I think it was the astonishing legends guys that first pointed that out to me was the the connection between uh, Jeff, the talking mongoose and, Kate the Bell Witch, <laughs> but it's but but also too you have in 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 all three cases the the Bell Witch case which I think is based on a core of truth and Jeff and Enfield you have these girls that are roughly the same all roughly the same age so it's kind of like um, that is the biggest one of the biggest things about poltergeist is that and it, it's it, it it can be boys but most often it's girls around the ages of around probably 10 to 14 as i kind of understand it yeah and that reminds me as well as uh, um of the witch trials you know it was the younger girls that would actually start off these uh these crazes saying that you know acting as if they were possessed or something like that it's all around that same same uh pre-adolescence adolescenthood there yes i have nothing else to add to that i'm sorry <laughs> I, i'm still hung up on the mongoose <laughs> well who who couldn't be hung up on the mongoose i mean any time that you bring mongoose into it uh kind of like uh, the ongoing curse of the bell witch essentially um this you do talk about a couple of cases where people st- have stolen rocks from the Bell Witch Cave, um, which I I've never kind of quite understood the association between the Bell Witch and the Bell Witch Cave, but um, the stealing rocks, items, those type of things. I think there was like in the 1950s there was people that went up to Adams, the teenagers, they got involved in a car accident and died. You know, all this kind of stuff also happens with with this case. Yeah, I mean that that history or that present day, not present day, but the I don't even know. It's it's like a mythology that's grown up around it. Um, and I understand that those those th- people claim those things happen. Although I will say, Aaron brought home a very large piece of flint that he found near the bell cabin. Um, and has not yet died, although you know it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. He's very reckless, uh, Aaron, that works on the crew, and also plays uh, John Junior in the movie. Um, he's managed to survive, but yeah, there's there's all sorts of stories about about people. So far, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Still got a month left in this year, um, but yeah. Uh, there's there's the stories so the one that is in the movie is the reference where they talk about uh the the kids that came in from nashville and took uh john and lucy's headstone and then they were in a car uh car wreck i don't know if it was like driving back to nashville or later you know yeah driving back to nashville they get in a car wreck and two of the kids die um there's other stories like that um some of my favorites involve two incidents where people tried to knock down the mon- monolith that not monolith. What am I talking about? 
<laughs> You're thinking about all those monoliths. I am. What is, what, is, what, are, what do they call the thing that's in the, the middle? Obelisk. Of the, obelisk. The obelisk. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. That's the, they, there's apparently been two incidences where people attempted to knock down the obelisk that sits in the middle of Bellwood Cemetery, um, and they actually constructed this concrete wall around the headstones and the obelisk because of the first time it had happened. And apparently this, yeah, the second time it was a truck. I think the second dude literally made it back there and tried to mount the wall in his truck and it ended up, you know, hitting it and got arrested and (laughs) went to jail. But I I find that really bizarre uh, that people are trying to knock down the, the bell obelisk. And apparently the first guy was successful uh, because that obelisk at one point in time was much bigger. They told me that you could wow. see the obelisk from from very far away. Today it's smaller, and apparently that's because the first guy actually managed to connect his car with the obelisk. What the, wh- why? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I think there were some things that um, Pat um, told me. Did he tell you about anything about there was something about rabbits? that he told me I'd had to go back and listen to that episode, but what, yeah, there was some interesting, weird stuff about rabbits and the bell, Witch. yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. There's a lot of, uh, rabbit rabbits can be creepy. They're also real sad because they, they, they bury their babies in my backyard and then I find them later on and they accidentally die after I discover them. That's a, Hey guys, that's a story for another day. <laughs> Tara brings up the rocks too in the film as far as taking stuff out of the cave. That's one of the yes. things yeah. mentions, um, that you should yeah. not do. Yeah, you also shouldn't shouldn't bring dolls home that are <laughs> bought from the 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 gift store at the Bell Caves. Yeah. Heather. But you did, and I appreciate it greatly. Why do they sell dolls at the Bill Witch Cave gift shop? So Chris That's... Kirby, um, one of the owners of the cave, um, they have a little gift shop where you, it's a, it's a tiny cabin and um, a little gift area. And then you wait because they only take so many people in the cave at a time. Anyway, they have little things in there to sell. And Chris, a few years ago, started buying porcelain dolls in the off season, painting them to look creepy. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple years ago, I took my family down there and my youngest who at the time was four, I think, um, picked out one of these dolls, brought her home. Her name's Sasha. That's what she named her. And she's proudly displayed in our kitchen. Well, I, uh, when I, I couldn't go this year because of COVID, which was my plan to go back down to visit with the family. And um, that didn't happen. So when Seth got everything arranged to go down, I went ahead and called Kara and said, can you get me another doll? Because I would have gotten one had I been able to go. And she said, yeah, I'll send it home with Seth. And then I didn't tell Seth, I don't think, until he was already on the road, hey, uh, when you see Kara, there's going to be a doll. Um, I need you to bring it back to Ohio for me. And he loved it. It was great. Um, She's a beautiful doll. Her name is Blair. Kara and I came up, you know, the Blair witch, get it? Mm, Of course, Uh, of course. Yeah, and apparently Seth tried to break her, but thankfully Aaron fixed her. I I would... I don't believe, first of all, <laughs> never believe anything Aaron says. <laughs> Second of all, she was, she was like crushed in a car. I, I managed to at least keep her in up near the front of the car. So she didn't get crushed by all of our gear in the back, but she literally sat like on the floor right behind 
the driver's seat on most of that trip yeah. I got at home. Well, she is porcelain, so it wouldn't shouldn't take much. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I got her then when I came in for the the interview. My interview was shot in the cabin here in Ohio, and Seth had her there for me then, and now she's here at home. And nothing moves in your house, like nothing nothing happens. But with this um, series of creepy dolls that you have yeah, available. Yeah. <laughs> no, nothing yet. But the um there is a doll that was from the Bell Witch Cave that was sent to the Archive of the Afterlife, which was in Moundsville. It just got relocated to Cameron, uh, West Virginia. Uh my friend runs this museum that has a bunch of haunted artifacts and someone who said she's a descendant of the Bells, went to the cave a few years ago, bought a doll, had a bunch of horrible things happen, and she mailed the doll to him. And he let me see the letter, and in it she said that she was tired of the scratches. Mm. So that doll is in the, um, the archive of the Afterlife uh, Museum. So, yeah, and Kara also explained that somebody has sent one of those dolls back. I mean, they get rocks back at the cave all the time, but one of the dolls had been sent back. And then I guess Chris just put it right back on the shelf to be sold again. So I don't know which doll that was. <laughs> Maybe the one that's in the archive for all I know. Wow. Creepy porcelain dolls. You had you, to send us a picture of, 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 you have like a whole collection of these things. I have those two from the cave. And then um, I have a miniature Robert, the doll. Oh no. And um, <laughs> a, a new one. Uh, her name is Lily. And um, my co-host actually found out about this one. I think that she's supposed to be like an alternative to Elf on the Shelf. Uh -huh. She's this little porcelain looking, she's not actually porcelain doll that's painted up all creepy. And um, my kids are sick of them. When a new <laughs> doll arrives, they're like, we already have too many. <laughs> <laughs> they just stare at you in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. Well, when Robert, when Robert showed up, um, two of my three kids started crying. Because they're familiar with Robert the doll. Uh-huh. Um, so, and they don't like Blair at all either. Yeah, me, me either. So, so, so they sell Rob, miniature Robert the dolls in the gift shop in Key West. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. And you can order wow. them online. That's how I got mine because I've never been to Key West. Wow. Yeah. Are, are they like imbued with Robert's power? Do they take him and like rub them against Robert? There's a note in there from Robert saying, take care of, take care of my mini me. So. This is Bob. <laughs> 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 well, thank you guys so much for doing this. This has been excellent. I, I've really enjoyed this discussion. Um, Seth, uh, tell everybody where they can find the film and also your other films that you've, I, I know you, you just came out like not too long ago, just a few months ago with the, the Mothman film and uh, trail UFOs and um, just tell everybody where they can find all that. Yeah. Um, so at this point, point most of our movies are available on most major streaming platforms um you know like itunes and google play and youtube and youtube movies not uh free youtube although there are some mm -hmm. stuff there there's we actually just posted like a uh director's cut of beast of boy hall free to youtube um but yeah most major streaming platforms if you look up my name or um 
small town monsters. Um, but on Tuesday next week, uh, the market of bell, which will be available on Amazon prime video and Vimeo on demand, or you can buy DVDs and Blu-rays at smalltownmonsters.com. And there will be more than likely, there will be a wide release for Mark of the Bell Witch later in 2021. Not too much later. I would imagine by March, you'll see it appearing on most major platforms. Um, and then coming up, uh, yeah, the Mothman Legacy as well is, is available on most major streaming platforms. And then coming up uh, in 2021, we're, uh, we'll, we've got, I think like between, okay. So between the Mark of the Bell Witch and this time next year, we're putting out like six new feature length movies, but we're also going to have an episodic series on our small time monster squad, uh, which is the name we gave to our YouTube channel membership. Um, An episodic series called on the trail of hauntings featuring one Heather Mosher, um, (laughs) where we're going around a different, haunted locations right now just in ohio but hopefully if this is successful we'll make it like an ongoing and we'll be going other places nice. so we have we have a lot coming over the next couple of years. do you ever stop seth do you sleep no i have a family to feed and if i was home more my wife would uh probably behead me <laughs> especially after you hunger from a tree yeah it's because of the tree incident the the hanging the hanging scene she's got a lot to pay me back for heather where can uh people uh find you online and also uh, tell us about your podcast yeah so uh i'm a co-host for the podcast the caravan library of lore um with lady Anne, and i do some stuff with small town monsters uh research and seth already mentioned on the trail of hauntings which will be coming out um we're wrapping that up here within the next month actually um and uh i am a weird writer for shannon legros um into the fray weird writer blog um i write the blog for the caravan of lore as well and I don't know. I'm around different, different things. Um, help with the writers conference of Northern Appalachia and I'm part of the Northern Appalachia review, um, which is a journal for Northern Appalachian writers. And uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I do other stuff too, but it's just things here and here and there with all kinds of weird stuff. Is what and, and you, uh, your day job is a classics history professor. Or yeah. Prof- my day job is a professor <laughs> uh, of classics. Yep. That is extremely fascinating. Okay, guys, thank you so much. Um, stay on the line for me. I'm going to close this out. And, uh, guys, I'll be back on Conspiranormal. Okay, very nice little interview there with Seth Breedlove and Heather Mosier. Uh, missed Serfiel this week, but uh, he's dealing with some things, and uh, he will actually be back on the next episode because we already recorded the next episode. So that's weird how that works. Um, so, guys, just to close everything out don't forget uh you can if you want to help support the show if you really like what we're doing you can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal and you can 
uh, we're right now we have got a one dollar membership that you can get a whole bunch of shows going back all the way to the end of 2016 that you guys have not heard and also we are doing pretty much doing um patreons every week and we recorded a patreon where you guys uh we talked me and Serfiel and uh and david metcalf we talked about the joe nickel article about the masonic connection to the bell witch so hope you guys will go check that out if you want to hear that that is one dollar however that's going to be only for a limited amount of time because around the 1st of January, we've got new tiers coming up. So um, stay tuned for that. All right, guys. Um, over and out. Don't forget, Conspiracy Normal Podcast on YouTube. Go give us a subscription. And guys, we will be back next week on Conspiracy Normal. YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast.